0: Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org.
1: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care podcast for Thursday, October twenty seventh, two thousand five. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In this edition of the podcast, we will be speaking with Kathy Guzetta, R.N., Ph.D., one of seven prominent critical care leaders to present during the plenary sessions at the thirty fifth Critical Care Congress, January seventh to eleventh, two thousand six, in San Francisco, California. Dr. Gazzetta is the Director of Holistic Nursing Consultants in Washington, D.C., as well as a nursing research consultant at Children's Medical Center of Dallas, Texas. She is certified as an advanced practice holistic nurse, and her recent research, as well as the topic of her plenary speech, is focused on family presence during cardiopulmonary resuscitation and invasive procedures. She has taken time out of her busy schedule to speak with us today on the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Good afternoon, Kathy.
2: Good afternoon.
1: Well, again, thanks for spending a little time with us today. And I'd like to start out, if I could, discussing the topic of holistic nursing, perhaps to educate uh, the members of SCCM who may not know precisely how that relates to their lives. And I was wondering if you could discuss what it is, how you became involved with it, and how it can be used to help improve the care of the critically ill patient.
2: Well, I would define holistic nursing as caring for the whole patient. It's a it's a way of clinical practice that addresses all the patient's bio, psycho, social, spiritual needs, and it's delivered within an, a healthcare system that's driven by the needs of the patient and family. And I, uh, I can articulate that to you today, but I'm sure I couldn't have done that um, when I started out in critical care, but that's really where my whole holistic journey um, began. Um, I was probably out of school about six months and was chosen to work in the intensive care unit. And um, the minute I walked through the door, I loved it. It was just the right fit for me. Uh, And I was very, very hungry and eager and consumed in learning everything that I could about uh, good critical care practice. Um, But I kept bumping into, I guess, crashing into um, events during my day that I just, I didn't understand i was confused by um i have patients in pain and and knew to give morphine but it was that whole pain anxiety fear syndrome that i just didn't know how to address that the so the medication is, alone wasn't enough No, it just wasn't enough and i and i saw you know patients with uh, negative imagery i mean they you know say things like they had a bad feeling something was going to happen or they were afraid they were going to die and you know you can you can look in your critical care books and certainly there's things that we tell patients about you know try to relax and take a deep breath and you'll be fine but those kinds of reassurances i mean we spend a lot of time at the bedside and you you know you see these patients and it just wasn't enough, and it didn't feel right, and I just felt like I was dealing with half of the equation and treating half of the equation.
1: So it sounds like you were sort of taking a lot of this negative energy and seeing if there were ways to use it to help take care of the patient.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and so I guess that's when I really started questioning that biomedical model that really does focus primarily on the body. And um, it was about that time that I met up with a colleague who I've been working with for now decades, um, Barbie Dossi. And we really sat down to look at um, alternate frameworks uh, like the holistic framework and what were the tenets and and assumptions that were involved with that. And more importantly, how could you take that holistic framework and um, find concrete applications for it at the bedside? And so that's what we really started to do. Um, We started to look for those body-mind or caring healing interventions that we might use to deal with some of the Enormous um, terror and um, stress that we saw in many of our patients admitted to our units, and so we we began to explore things as simple as suggestion and the placebo effect, and and breathing techniques and diaphragmatic breathing and guided imagery and music therapy and relaxation techniques and. And uh, then we started to learn those things and integrate them into our practice and um, had the feeling that we were dealing with um, many of the things that we needed to be dealing with.
1: And did that become an area of of research focus for you first, or can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh,
2: The um, research really came, I think, a little bit later. We we first began to write about some of these techniques um, in some of our books, and we wrote many books on how do you incorporate um, these body-mind healing um, interventions into practice. And then, I guess, I was confronted by many who, you know, said, where's the data? (laughs) Where's the data that this stuff works? Well, that's what I was
1: going to ask you, is when you were initially uh, starting to write the books, were they initially, were there challenges in terms of getting them uh, well-received or getting them integrated into practice? Can you tell us well, about that? Well,
2: knew, we knew that this was not an accepted concept, and, and I'm talking back in the 70s, late 70s. Um, and, yes, you know, when you when you publish a book called Critical Care Nursing, Body, Mind, Spirit, um, people challenge the ideas. And um, we began to realize that many of the things that... that were in the books needed to be tested and evaluated um, because we don't, in this day of healthcare, care, we certainly don't have the luxury of doing things that don't make a difference. And so that's really, yes, how I did get involved with starting to uh, look at various techniques and evaluate their effectiveness
1: and can you tell uh tell us what are some of the things that are part of holistic nursing that are used or that you strongly recommend could be integrated easily or as a first step towards that in the intensive care unit, or is it difficult for you to do that because it 's really an entire approach, or how would you how would you share that?
2: Well, I think we have many approaches, and um, not all approaches work for all patients, and some approaches are more technical and, and involve more certification. For example, if we have so much equipment in the intensive care unit that could be actually used as biofeedback equipment, but um, to do biofeedback um, one needs to get certified and have additional training. But when it comes to you know seeing a patient in severe pain who has this negative imagery of, let's say, a, a steel bar wrapped around his chest, um, it's as simple really as, as uh, going in and, and letting the patient know you're administering the morphine right now. It's a powerful analgesic. it's going to help relieve his pain. But oh, by the way, there's some things that he can do he can do that to, to help um, the morphine to work let's Let's talk about uh, slowing down the breathing a little bit. Let's talk about doing some diaphragmatic breathing. Let's talk about imaging those molecules of morphine going to the heart and unwrapping that steel bar. Uh, until that steel bar just melts away. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing when nurses say to me, I don't have the time to do that, um, what I just um, explained to you it doesn't take any more time than going in and, and pushing morphine in the first place. It's just a different way of approaching it um, and certainly talking about breathing and, and relaxing and, and uh and suggesting that the morphine is powerful and suggesting a positive image of this bar melting away, those are all techniques that people don't need to go back to school for. They just you know, need to think about how, how can they do that on a day-to-day basis.
1: And do you integrate that um, in, from the intensive care unit standpoint, uh, working with families at all, uh, separate from, from our next topic in terms of family presence, but are there other areas where working with families in a holistic way would be considered uh, holistic nursing?
2: Well, certainly the the whole idea of holistic nursing is that it's driven by both the patient uh, and the family. And in many cases, um, I've had families in the room with me when I was actually doing some of the guided imagery or the head-to-toe relaxation techniques, and and they can actually, you know, um, see it role-modeled. And I encourage families to work with, with their own loved ones in, in doing some of the things that we teach them.
1: And in terms of... Um, it sounds like some of these imaging techniques would be better. For example, you mentioned uh, prior to surgery. Um, Are you able to work with some patients and their families to teach patients how to do some of these techniques prior to surgery?
2: Well, let let me give you an example of um, a patient who told me that he was scared to death about going for his cardiac catheterization the next day. And, um, you know, I really listen to that now. When I, when I hear that, um, it's serious stuff. And so um, I told him that, that I could give him some tools to help him cope better with that and get through the experience of the catheterization the next day. And I said, but tell me first, where's a, where's a place you really like to go and relax? And he said, oh, that's easy. I have a little fishing um, cabin up in uh, Canada. And he said, I'd just love to go there with my brother and fish. So um, I did some deep breathing with him, just a few minutes, a little head-to-toe relaxation, and I suggested to him that the next morning when he gets on the cardiac gas table that he really go back to Canada and go fishing. And I, you know, laid down some suggestions of uh, arriving at the cabin and and looking at uh, the trees and the animals playing and walking towards the pond and setting up his fishing gear and, and going fishing. And um, I told him I wanted him to practice that tonight before he went to bed and again in the morning when he got up, knowing that uh, he was going to find out some important information about um, how the doctors and nurses then, uh, would be dealing with his illness in the future. And um, so I came back to see him the next morning and he said, you know, Kathy, I practiced that last night. And I said, that's fine, um, and I want you to do that in the cath lab. So. When he came out of the cath lab, he said to me, (laughs) he said, you've got to know, I was so scared about that, but he said, you gave me some information, some tools, uh, something to control um, my fear when I was on the cath table. And he said, and I caught the biggest fish I've ever caught while I was there.
1: So, so it, again, it really allows you to provide some degree of psychological control over what is frequently a, a frightening situation. That's
2: correct, in, in a situation where you have little or no control, but um, it, 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 it is a tool for control and a tool to, um, to change that imagery um, and that, that fear that's going on.
1: Are there any particular websites that you might recommend or resources for clinicians that might be interested in learning more about holistic nursing as part of their intensive care unit?
2: Well, one of the things that's very exciting, of course, is that the National Institutes of Health have um, established the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Therapies, and uh, you can get to that site by just going to NIH.gov. Uh, and many, many of those body-mind techniques, as well as other um, alternative and complementary therapies, um, are, are being um, researched right now at, at about 18 research centers across the country. Uh, in addition, we have a, an amazing organization, the American Holistic Nursing Association. Uh, the website is ahna.org and uh, they have set up a core curriculum, the Standards for Holistic Nursing, um, which really goes across all subspecialties. It, it, you can apply it in critical care, in emergency room, and surgery, and medicine, and pediatrics, um, but they really have established what is it, um, w- what are those standards for uh, a holistic nurse, um, and what, what is the content of that information for a holistic nurse.
1: Well, you know, our, our critically ill patients need every possible venue to help improve their outcomes, and I think that uh, this is an important one. And along those lines, um, you know, as we discussed before, you're going to be giving a plenary speech on the concept of family presence during cardiopulmonary resuscitation, as well as during invasive procedures. And I thought we'd use the remainder of our time here today to really sort of introduce this concept which um, I would guess to say the least is is controversial but very important and certainly does have a body of literature surrounding it. And I was wondering if you could take a little time to introduce uh, the concept of family presence during CPR and perhaps describe how you, again, got involved with that, perhaps discussing some of the challenges that you met along the way.
2: Well, that's been a very, very interesting journey for me. Uh, And and it was really about, uh, oh, the beginning of uh, 1990, maybe 93, um, that I was working at um, Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, and um, my primary job there was as a research mentor. And so I was dealing with nurses who had exquisite clinical problems um, that they dealt with uh, with patients. Um, many, many of them were expert nurses, but all were novices in terms of um, their research background. And um, one day shortly after I had arrived, uh, a nurse by the Therese, name of Teresa Myers came in to see me, and she told me about an incident that had happened the day before about bringing the family into the bedside of a 14-year-old um, child. Uh, he had fallen out of a tree. He had sustained severe abdominal trauma, and um, the family desperately wanted to get in uh, to see the child. And of course, at that time, the child was being resuscitated. Uh, she was able uh, to get permission to bring the family in, and did. Um, the family was thankful. But following that event, um, people were not happy with what had happened, and there was, you know, talk that she might lose her job. Um, People asked her who did she think she was doing something like that because that's not what we do. And um, and I said to her, Teresa, why did you do that? And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, because it was the right thing to do for this family.
1: So there, are the, the 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 one of the major points is that that. A, it's sort of a time-honored tradition, and uh, as we'll talk about, there are multiple significant concerns about why it is the way it is now. But the point is, uh, from what I can gather looking at the literature uh, that you've created much of, is that there are certain situations where it may benefit uh, the mind-body-spirit and the whole family-patient continuum in terms of completion, well, allowing family members to feel as if they're there during this crisis time.
2: Yes, yes, I think that's exactly right. And, I, you know, when I was thinking about it, I thought, what could be more holistic than facilitating a family being together if they wanted to be? Um, and, and certainly in my education, I'm sure in yours, I, I know across the country that it, it's kind of the unwritten rule that during this kind of crisis, um, certainly during a, a major resuscitation, families aren't allowed at the bedside. Uh, and you know what are the what are the reasons for that? And I, I think a lot of those are are ones that we as providers self impose. We we say that it's it's a horrific event. It's it's such an emotional event that um, you know that's not good for families and and uh, families might lose control at the bedside. And um, if they do, patient care could be interrupted. And certainly, <clears throat> I think of um, of all the fears or concerns that we have about bringing families in, that probably is the number one concern, and it, it, and it should be. Um, we don't want families in there that are interrupting a resuscitation. Um, but about the same time that we were, we were doing um, or thinking about trying to set up a family presence program at Parkland, um, the Emergency Nurses Association came out with a position statement on family presence um, and guidelines on how to do it. And um, as we were, you know, slogging along trying to set up our own program, um, the guidelines were very helpful to us because it's clear that family presence is not an expectation. That is to say, if you were to set it up at your hospital tomorrow, you would not expect all families would want to be at the bedside during some of these events. So, number one, it's an option. Uh, It's not an expectation. And number two, the way the guidelines are set up, it's not a haphazard situation. Um, the, the guidelines are set up such that a family facilitator is involved with the family um, and assesses the family to be sure that they're appropriate candidates to bring it bedside. bedside, um, that they have some emotional coping going on, that they're not out of control or they're not combative or they're not you know, on, on drugs or whatever um, And uh, the family facilitator helps prepare that family for the the bedside. Um, Many of the families that have been in um, in the studies that we've done have have told us how important it was to be there, how important it was for them to see that everything possible was done, how important it was that they could, you know, touch a toe or touch a finger or pray at the bedside, or in some cases um, provide the, the. physicians and nurses in the room with uh, important health care information. So the families feel, actually, when they're in there, that they've got uh, an active role to play.
1: And, and th- there were two, two other points I wanted to bring up. One was, it sounds like choosing the person that becomes the facilitator is a pretty critical uh, choice. You have to have somebody who can have the right temperament for that kind of a what must be a very, very difficult job. Uh, well, that's that.
2: correct. That's correct. And when we, um, when we actually set up the program at Parkland, um, we trained everybody. I mean, uh, we trained all of the, the nurses. Um, we we were um, we trained the physicians in terms of the guidelines. But in addition, we have social workers and child life specialists, and these were folks who routinely dealt with um, critically ill patients, or emergency department patients, and and serious crisis. Um, and they were all trained in the guidelines so that. Here, Many times, there may be a nurse as a family facilitator, or it could be a social worker or a childlike specialist.
1: And um, one of the other questions I had was, uh, I know some of the guidelines recommend to uh, wait until some of the initial invasive procedures are done before allowing the family to come in, and I was just wondering, uh, since you have a lot of experience with this, what are your your thoughts on those particular uh, recommendations, or do you not feel that that is critical?
2: I, I'm not sure that it is critical. Um, I think the, the most important thing would be to, um, and, and this is difficult, more difficult in the emergency department than sometimes it is in critical care, because you, haven't, um, you don't know the family. And so in a very short time um, in discussing uh, with the family what's going on, you need to, you need to really assess how the, the family is reacting to the information and so very quickly a decision needs to be made is this uh, family member an appropriate candidate uh, or not and um, i i'm not sure that you know (laughs) that waiting for any specific time uh let's say uh, after the endotracheal tube is inserted is you know the right time i i don't know that that's a consideration. I think that, that falls back on what we think is you know, going to be too terrific or too traumatic and too horrific for um, families to see.
1: One of the other uh, stories that I think is really important to try and share with the members of SCCM that I've found uh, very exciting to hear from you was that the, the concerns that you met when you were trying to get this implemented were concerns about increased in in lawsuits, that there would be interference at the bedside, that there would be psychological trauma to the families, and concerns about, uh, I guess, confidentiality. And and, uh, you were mentioning uh, previously that it wasn't until you were able to actually get the data that you were able to show that these really were not as significant issues as, as people thought beforehand. Well,
2: I think, um, I, I think that was the initial concern, particularly when there wasn't any research um, about those kinds of outcomes, and, and you, can, you can almost have a laundry list of what as a physician or a nurse what your concerns might be, but um, as we did our research and as others have done their research, um, all of those concerns that you just mentioned are not established uh, by any research study. In fact, um, the majority of studies that have uh, actually looked at actual family presence events, not, not a hypothetical, not, you know, let's think about the family being present at the bedside and what are your concerns, but... What are your experiences with having families at the bedside? What, what, what have you seen in terms of um, benefits and problems? And as the time went on and data is collected, um, we found out that families were not interfering with patient care, and that's primarily beca- because, again, we were doing that assessment, doing that screening, and we simply weren't going to bring in families that were out of control and would interfere with care.
1: And I wanted to ask you uh, another important question. And again, as we've discussed before, uh, assessing this literature, there really seem to be uh, groups that tend to have different perspectives on this, uh, doctors early in their training and doctors who've been out for a while, uh, the perspectives of the nurse compared with the perspective of a physician, an adult clinician versus a pediatrician. And I saw in some studies that even different geographies, different areas of the country tend to have different, uh, tended to have different perspectives on this. And I was wondering if are there future planned studies that you are involved in or that you are aware of that are trying to uh, pick this apart to deal with each of these problems and try and show that these should not be barriers to family presence?
2: Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. There's been, <coughs> and there's been a, um, many studies, actually, that have shown the differences in the level of support for family presence um, between nurses and physicians and particularly physicians with um, limited clinical experience. I suspect some of that has to do with the comfort level of having families in um, when you're not comfortable perhaps with your own clinical skills. Um, I guess the real, my big question about that would be the so what issue. Um, if, if those are barriers, um, are those going to be significant barriers in meeting the body, mind, spirit needs of patient and families? Um, but we know that that kind of thing does exist in terms of, um, of um, support between nurses and um, physicians. We certainly know, I think, um, we can intuit that there are some differences between family prisons and adult institutions versus pediatric institutions. Um, it it's doesn't take too much thinking to well, and there's certainly a great body of literature out there to support the idea that families, moms and dads, want to be with their kids right. and that the the children want their parents there. So in some aspects, I think um, it might be easier to institute family presence in a pediatric institution, but I, I don't know that that's been established by any evidence.
1: And any current uh, projects that you're involved in or aware of uh, that might be coming out in the future uh, regarding this?
2: Well, that's a a good question. We actually just finished up uh, a study in a pediatric um, emergency department, Um, and uh, shortly after that, we uh, just got funded for another study in our pediatric intensive care unit. And I am beginning to see um, some major, major differences um, in implementing family presence between the emergency department and critical care, and I don't need to tell you that those settings are very different. But... Um, when you when you really think about it, um, you may have one um, major incident in an, in an emergency department. Let's say the patient comes in and needs an emergency intubation. And that patient then gets you know um, transferred to the intensive care unit, and up there the patient might be extubated or re-intubated or you know another major procedure. And so you may have multiple multiple family presence events, and we're trying to. Uh, figure out how that all works and do facilitators need to be there for every one of them and um, do parents want to be there for all of that. So it becomes
1: a complex matrix at that point That's up in correct. the ICU. That's correct. Um, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Kathy Gozetta, the Director of Holistic Nursing Consultants in Washington, D.C., as well as a nursing research consultant at Children's Medical Center of Dallas, Texas, and I actually had a, a question: If an institution wanted to contact you, are you available as a resource to help something like this get going? And is there a website or an email address that that you might be contacted at if you're uh, if you're interested?
2: Oh yes, I, I'd be happy to um, speak to anyone who would be interested in exploring it further. Um, I suppose the best email address would be mine. Uh, which is um, C as in cat, E as in Elizabeth, G U Z Z E T T at AOL.com.
1: Great. Well, um, as, I've, uh, as I've mentioned before, this is an absolutely fascinating topic. Some people are aware of it, some people aren't, and it seems as if you've already made tremendous progress, recommendations by the American Heart Association and the Emergency Nursing Association, and we very much look forward to hearing your talk at Congress. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Thursday, October 27th, 2005. Don't miss Dr. Gazetta's plenary speech entitled Family Presence During CPR and Invasive Procedures from one thirty to 2.20 p.m. on Monday, January ninth, 2006 during the 35th Critical Care Congress in San Francisco, California. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with other prominent members of the critical care community. Please check out the podcast website at www.sccm.org slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. Registration is
0: open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco Mascone West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care, as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment, all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts. Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org. Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.